Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. So our goal this morning is to tell the story of a church. Tell the story of a church that Scripture actually tells us a lot about, maybe to connect some dots. So we're going to primarily work through the letter that Jesus had sent to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. But before we do that, I want to give context to how we got there, how we get there. What are these people like? What has their experience been? So the city of Ephesus was a very powerful city. It was like on a, a port there, um, and it was powerful for a couple reasons. One of those reasons is that it was a big trade area. Like it would connect the, the Greco-Roman world, so like all of the, the Greeks and the Romans, to Asia. It was like the capital Roman province in this region. So there's a lot of trade going on, a lot of powerful, important people rolling through there. But the second reason that it was a, a powerful and well-known city, maybe more important than that, it actually was the home to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That was the temple to the uh, pagan goddess Artemis. And it was so prestigious from its size, from its beauty. People would come from all over to see and to worship at this temple. And so really it became kind of like a, a tourism location. Like there were people making lots of money from lodging, from food. Uh, there were craftsmen there that would make little idols you could take home, little souvenirs to, so you could go worship at home too. And there was a lot of business, a lot of economy built around this ancient structure. So not only was it big to the Romans, but it was big as far as uh, a place of, of worship and a place of tourism. It was truly dedicated to so many things. But the first time Ephesus shows up in God's revelation to us in the, the, the words of Scripture is in Acts 18. Now this is the end of Paul's second missionary journey. So Acts 18, starting in verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So in the tail end of his second missionary journey, he spends a little bit of time there, but the church doesn't really get off the ground. There may be seeds that are planted, there is interest that is peaked, but it's not really the church at Ephesus yet. But then about two or three years later, when Paul is on his third missionary trip, he spends really the lion's share of that trip with the Ephesians. And this is where things just absolutely blow up in Ephesus. You can read the whole story in Acts 19. Um, it is a truly remarkable story. We're going to kind of go through a, some highlights real quick to keep it big picture. But God does some absolutely incredible things here. So Acts 19 Let's start with verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, meaning Christianity, 
before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul returns to the synagogue that wanted him to stay longer. And he spends three months there, and he's continuing to teach them about Jesus, to connect the Old Testament dots to the cross. And so he's teaching there. There's apparently some people that come to saving faith in Christ there, but there's also others who it says are stubborn, who speak evil of the way, who aren't interested in pursuing Christ. So Paul changes his location, right? He goes from a Jewish setting in the synagogue to a very Greek setting in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, this was this interesting place where traveling philosophers could rent out space, and they could rent space to do their teachings. And all kinds of people would come there and would learn from these traveling philosophers. So Paul is in a very uh, pagan, very Greek area, and he is now teaching the ways of the Lord. But did you notice how long he's spending there? Two years. Now, two years tells us that there is some fruit that's going on there, right? There is something that is happening there. There are people that are coming to Christ. There are people that are being pushed further into the love of Christ. This city is about to be turned absolutely upside down. So as he is, is there, God is starting to do miracles. If you read all of Acts 19, you'll see God doing all these miracles through Paul. You're going to see that demons fled from Paul. You're going to see the sick being healed. Truly miracles like these Ephesians had never seen before. There's this really interesting story, and you, you should read all of it uh, later after the service. But there are some guys there that, that see what Paul is doing. They see God working through Paul, and they're like, you know what? We can make some money if we do this. So they try to copy Paul. So what they do is they go to this person who has been possessed by a demon. Maybe a mistake, Right? And they try to cast out the demon, just like Paul's been casting demons out. And this demon says one of the most interesting lines. He's like, Jesus I know, Paul I have heard of, but who are you? And then this demon-possessed person proceeds to beat these people so severely, it says they leave the house wounded and naked. Wounded and naked. Now, I'm not a UFC fan. Like, I don't watch fighting. I, I know we got some folks that do like jujitsu in our church and they're experts in that kind of thing. I'm not. But here's what I know about fighting, okay? If you go into a fight with clothes on and you leave the fight so that you're described as wounded and naked, it did not go well. You got the pants beat off of you, okay? I really love that story. I like to believe that when Luke was writing this, he chuckled a little bit when he wrote, wounded and naked. <laughs> but this God it, that was working through Paul is doing such incredible things. People there are seeing that Jesus is not a God. He's the God. In fact, verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Like this gospel that Paul wrote later, Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. It is that power of God that is to continue to increase and prevail mightily, both in the synagogue 
and even more in the Greek areas that are there. Ephesus is being turned upside down, and it's not going without notice. You see, there's this silversmith. His name's Demetrius. And what he does is he makes these little idols of Artemis that people can take home. They can come, worship at the temple, then they take home one of his little idols. There's lots of craftsmen that would do this. This was booming business for the city. But what he's noticing is that so many people are responding to the gospel Paul is preaching that it is hurting his bank account. His business built on idolatry, literally making idols, is hurting because of how the word of the Lord is advancing in Ephesus and surrounding areas. Is that not incredible? Is it not incredible that people are responding to the gospel in such a way that evil business is hurt by it? So he calls all these other craftsmen, and he's like, guys, this, something's happening here. We can't let this continue. And they get all stirred up and all crazy, and a riot breaks out. And people are going crazy. There's confusion all over the place. But can you imagine what it would be like for the believers that are there? They were walking one way of life, and then all of a sudden, one day, the gospel comes to town. Saves them radically. But not just that, but turns their whole city upside down. They are being born through fire in Ephesus. And that fire really takes hold of them. It really does amazing things. When Paul would write the book of Ephesians a few years later, we don't see any obvious flaws in the church. See, typically when Paul writes the letters, because they've done, done something, right? Like when he writes Galatians, he is like, I am astonished that you have abandoned the faith so quickly, right? When he writes First and Second Corinthians, if you read through that, they had all kinds of moral issues they were getting into. When he writes Colossians, they have a theology issue that is around who Christ is. There are so many letters where people either believed wrong or lived wrong. But in Ephesians... Scholars look at it and they say there's no obvious way or obvious reason for writing other than just to encourage and instruct, to get the discipleship train a little further down the track. So what that tells us is this church, born in fire, years after that, is still, that flame is going, good things are happening, the church is healthy, it is vibrant, beautiful things are happening. They are staying off of Paul's naughty list for the time being, and really for the rest of Paul's life. So here's what we've seen. A church born in a deeply pagan and religious city, born through fire, they grow into a faithful, vibrant, gospel-focused church who continued to follow after Jesus passionately for some time, we see a church who not only was born in fire, but continued to be on fire for their Savior. A beautiful testament to the power of the gospel in the life of people. But as time goes by, as we fast forward to the 90s, so the end of the first century, something's happened. Something's changed in this church. And we know something's changed because they're on the list that Jesus sends letters to. And no one comes out of that list unscathed, right? He is calling them on them, calling something out in their lives that has gone astray. So, Revelation 2. So we're going to spend the rest of our time here this morning. What has gone wrong? 
what has gone right? And what can we learn from those things? So, Revelation 2. This is Jesus speaking to John, who's writing this down. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. So as you see from what we've highlighted in verse 2, Jesus is looking at this church and he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You see, this is the positive part of their report. This is what they're doing right So our first point for us to understand through this letter is that Jesus loves good deeds. He loves them. He loves good deeds. In this city where there is so much evil going on, the the church at Ephesus lived righteously. They did good deeds. They did good works. When they got that letter from Paul, chapters 4, 5, and 6 is all about living a godly life. They took that to heart and created distinction between themselves and the rest of the city. They are in this city that still worshipped Artemis, that still was pagan, that still was evil. But in the midst of all of that, they said, we're choosing the ways of Christ. We're going to obey Jesus. We're going to do what he said is right. What he said is righteous. Now, there was an Ephesian philosopher. So this guy is not a Christian. He's not a believer. Um, he, wa- he worshipped Artemis like the rest of the city. But this is what he said about Ephesus. His name was Heraclitus. He said, no one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. The morals are lower than animals. And the inhabitants of Ephesus are fit only to be drowned. It was at that point that he realized his true calling in life was to write Hallmark cards. So that's what he turned to after that. He actually had this weird fixation of, like, he had several writings and statements where he would talk about how Ephesus needed to be drowned, um, which probably required therapy, but to my knowledge, Heraclitus never received any kind of therapy. But it gives you an idea of what this city was like. People who don't know Jesus are looking at the immorality of this city and they're like, you know what? These people are worse than animals. There's no morals here. This city's fit to be drowned. Now, can you imagine living in a place like that? You probably can, where everyone goes about every evil thing and then the calling on your life is to pursue righteousness, to pursue good works and good deeds that are honoring to Jesus. Can you imagine the pressure that would come from everyone going every which way, doing every evil thing that pops in their mind so that their own philosophers say, you know what, we just need to drown this city. Can you imagine pursuing Christ in that and saying, you know what, the rest of the world may go where they may go. They may follow after what they think is right. They may pursue every pleasure under the sun. But as for me, I will choose the Lord. So Jesus sees this. And what an encouragement that is. He's like, I know your good works. Like the Savior, the one who loves them more than anything. He's like, I know what you're doing well. I know how you're pursuing the path of righteousness there. 
What an encouragement that must be. What a beautiful testimony to say, hey, Jesus knows what you did good. For us today, living in this country, living in this world where like pleasure is the, the ultimate morality for most people, where there is so much depravity all over the place, where they say what is wrong is right and what is right is wrong, Jesus still calls the church to pursue His words, to live as He said is right. He calls us to live in distinction from the rest of the world. So the question for you is, is there anything in your life that is different from your unbelieving neighbors other than your presence this morning? Because I'm grateful you're here. I was worried no one was going to show up about 10 minutes before service. It's a very empty room. But I'm glad all of y'all came this morning. But is there more to the distinction in your life other than your Sunday morning location? Because there's got to be. There's got to be more that is different about the way I live my life than my unbelieving friends or neighbors than just where I am on Sunday mornings. I've got to pursue Him. I've got to pursue His words. I've got to have this pattern of repentance in my life that says, Jesus, you are right. I was wrong. Let my life now agree with your words. It's like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He told those in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. He says in verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your good deeds, your good works, the way that you give the way that you live your life be in such distinction from the rest of the world that people see it, observe it, and know it, and it is glorifying to your Father. Does that describe us today? Does that describe the way we live our life? Or does the way we live our life look more like the rest of the world, but we come here on Sunday mornings? Again, I'm so glad you're here. I just want there to be more in your life than this. Because honestly, if you just come here and hear someone speak for a little while and then go and live like the rest of the world, you're probably going to have more misery growing than joy. But if you decide that you're going to line up your life with the words that God has revealed in His Word and the rest of the world, that is what's going to lead to a greater life, a more joy-filled life. Let's keep going. Verse 2 again, he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But look at this. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And then in verse 6 he says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So our second point that we see here is that not only does Jesus love good deeds, He loves right doctrine. He loves us to believe true and good things about who He is. He wants us to have an accurate picture of our God and Savior. Now, you may not be familiar with the Nicolaitans, but the early church fathers tell us that they were followers of this guy named Nicolaus. Now, Nicolaus, whether you realize it or not, is a name you have read before. 
And I'm only showing you some of this so you can see some of the connectivity in God's Word. In Acts chapter 6, we see the first deacons being ordained. Okay? And then in verse 5, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. That guy, Nicolaus, started out so good, it seems. But somewhere along the road, his belief drifted. He no longer believed and taught right things. In fact, he became an early false teacher in the church. He became someone who led people astray. 1 Timothy 1.3 is Paul writing to Timothy as he's serving in Ephesus, as we see. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, if you go to, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's going to talk more about these different doctrines, right? If you were to lay that right next to what the early church fathers say that this Nicolaus guy was teaching people, the Nicolaitans, they're the exact same thing. There's this church that received someone who they probably thought was prestigious because he's one of the first deacons, and they started hearing things about what he was teaching. But did you see what Jesus said about the church at Ephesus? They rejected the teaching. They said, no, 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 that's not what Paul taught us. That's not what the Scriptures teach. You have drifted somewhere. That's not going to be us. In one of the later writings in Revelation, or later letters in Revelation, there's another church that fell victim to this teaching, but not Ephesus. Ephesus understood right doctrine, and Jesus is commending them for believing and rejecting, right? Believing the right things and rejecting the wrong things. One church follower said this of the Nicolaitans. He said, the Nicolaitans are followers of that Nicolaus, who was one of the very first seven ordained. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is very plainly pointed out in the Apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation, when they are represented as teaching that is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed by idols. There are so many other early church followers that would describe their immoralities, that would describe how they have departed from the good teaching. And if you're in Ephesus, and you're in this place where the whole city is living a life of indulgence and giving in to whatever pleasure they want to, and this guy rolls up saying, hey, you can have Jesus and all your sin too. You don't need to repent from your stuff. Do you know how tempting that would be to give in to? you know how tempting it would be to say, you know what? Yeah, we'll proclaim the name of Jesus, but we'll live like the rest of the world. That actually sounds great. Have your cake and eat it too, right? But they reject it. Listen, I've said this before. A personal relationship with Jesus is what God wants for you. He wants a personal relationship for you, right? But a personal relationship does not mean a personalized Jesus. We don't get to customize who He is. We don't get to change out what is right and true. We are to live in a way that is fully submitted to Him. Jesus loves right doctrine. And I know there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. I know it's a big book with lots of words in it and lots of teachings that you kind of got to line up. But I'm going to tell you, it is worth digging into. 
The God of this universe, the creator and sustainer of everything, wants you to know him and gave you a book to help you do that. It's hard work. It requires effort. It requires being intentional. It requires asking questions and finding answers to those questions, asking for help a lot of the time. But it is worth it because God wants you to know him accurately. So Jesus loves the good deeds and Jesus loves the right doctrine. Verse 3, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. The third thing we see that Jesus loves here is that Jesus loves enduring dedication. Yeah, he loves the good deeds. He loves the right doctrine. He loves the enduring dedication. And again, Remember the cultural pressure of this city. Do you know how weary they must, they could have been, they would have been tempted to be with having this belief system that ran completely contradictory to everyone else around them? Everyone else said this thing was good when it was bad. And they would often look at the church at Ephesus, look at these believers trying to follow Jesus to the best they can. And don't you know that made Christians the cultural bad guys? Don't we kind of experience that today sometimes, right? When people say, how could you call that sin? How could you say that is wrong? How could you hold people back from those things? Doesn't it sometimes get weary, a little tiring, to understand that, hey, we believe things that the rest of the world thinks is crazy. We have a system of morality as revealed by the one true God. We have absolute truth that we are seeking to live by, but we have absolute truth in a time where the one no-no in our culture is absolute truth, right? We live in a world that wants to, to, to cater to all of these different beliefs, except for the one that says, hey, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. We have to endure. We have to look to our rock and our refuge. Like, look, in our world today, there is so much effort to hold up every system of sexual immorality that is out there, except for what God has declared to be true, right? That says, hey, you can go out whatever your heart desires, whatever pleasure you want to seek. The only bad guy is the one that says, no, there is a right way to sexuality. There is a right way that God has ordained one man, one wife, under the system of marriage that he has ordained. But guys, don't you know for them there's that temptation to give in? But they didn't. And you don't have to either. What was true in the first century is true today. The people of Ephesus that chased after every pleasure and idolatry under the sun, all of that faded away. The truth the church at Ephesus founded everything on is still standing and will be standing 30,000 years from now, a million years from now, a billion. When time ends, his truth will still be standing. The Word of God will still be true. The Savior will still be worth it. 
So look, when we say grow weary, understand there is a God who is worth it that will sustain every step of the way. So what we see with this church is they had the good deeds, they had the right doctrine, they had the enduring dedication. But there was something off, right? They're not getting a letter if they're batting a thousand. There's something wrong. Verses 4 and 5. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you had at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So look, we see the deeds, we see the doctrine, we see the dedication. Here's one word I'm breaking from my alliteration. Jesus loves your heart. Your heart. You. He wants you. He doesn't want this empty robot that is just doing all of the good deeds, right? That is just like computerized to say the right things. He doesn't just want some miserable saint who acts like everything is awful. He wants you and your heart. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. So what we see with this church is really almost like a, it seems like they're a church of of Pharisees. Doing good, believing good, having endurance, but no love. Does that describe anybody today? Because I I think sometimes we can get into this pattern where we're like, all right, I did that good thing. I I believe these right things. You know, I'm showing up week after week after week. Isn't that good enough? And Jesus says, I want your heart. I want you. Again, Jesus desires a relationship with you. He is pursuing you. Yes, he loves the deeds, the doctrine, the dedication, but he wants you. He wants the deeds, the doctrine, the dedication to flow out of the love that you have for him. Maybe this will will help. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, this is a very familiar verse for many of you. It says, Jesus says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The church at Ephesus, they had the soul with their enduring dedication. They had the mind with their right doctrine. They had the strength with their good deeds. They just missed the heart. They understood the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law that was behind it. Do we understand the spirit of it? Do we understand the love that God wants to be there in our hearts for Him? Not empty obedience, not blind doctrine, not miserable dedication, but an actual devotion to our Lord out of the love we have for Him. Maybe it's a coincidence, but I I don't think that it is with all the pressures that they are experiencing that could have potentially put out this fire. Paul told them to put on the armor of God to get ready for the spiritual fight. And I think that's what we need to do as well. Maybe we can do an autopsy on them to see what we need to do. Maybe there was unrepentant sin in their life. Because we surely know that unrepentant sin can quench any joy that you may have in the Lord. 
You see, if you're living in under the conviction of the Lord, but not in obedience to the Lord, it's going to be a very miserable place to be. That can put the flame out like that. Maybe you're discouraged with how life has played out. Maybe you're tired, against, uh, tired of fighting against the pressures brought on by our culture. But whatever it is that may have you this morning feeling like that fire is either down to just a little bit of a flicker or maybe it's gone out entirely, there is always hope in Jesus Christ. There is always the ability that He has to breathe life into death. To breathe substance where there was just this mindless drone. We can fan the flame, guys. The fire can be brought back. The fire can be growing. The fire can be consuming. And what a more beautiful way to live that is. Look, if there is unrepentant sin in our life, the first step to fanning the flame in our life is to repent, to obey God. It is for our joy. Look, John 15, he says, abide in me, right? That's the famous chapter on abiding in him. He says, I have given you these commands so that my joy may be in you. And then he says, and that your joy may be full. You want to fan the flame? Search for the sin that's in your life and repent from it. Because obedience to what God has said is a way to get that fire going, to get it growing. Gratitude is a very powerful way to fan the flame. I say over and over, our students are probably tired of hearing it, but we are most fearful when we're most forgetful. When we forget about the faithfulness of God in our life, when we forget about the goodness of God in our life, how He has shown up time after time after time, when we forget that stuff, we get so afraid about what tomorrow may bring. But when we remember, when we have this heart of gratitude that says, look at what the Lord did here. Look at how he has provided there. Look how he worked that situation out that had me so bent out of shape. What we do is we end up creating this line of testimony, these little monuments in our life that says, look at the faithfulness of God. And if he was faithful then and he is faithful today, he is going to be faithful in the future. Whatever the future may come, I have a track record of seeing God's faithfulness getting me through hard situations. And if I can look to that, then I will know he's going to be there with me in the future. Guys, why do you think over and over and over in the Old Testament, God reminds His people that it was Him who brought them out of Egypt? Why do you think that is? Because they would get forgetful. And when they would get forgetful, they would get so fearful. And that is where their hearts chase after everything else, tried to cling to all these other things that would only leave them frustrated and in ruin. Look, if we feel like the fan or the flame has panned out in our life, if it is not growing as it once did, maybe it is because we have been forgetting the goodness, provision, the blessings of God in our life, and that has caused us to be afraid about tomorrow and caused us to doubt Him. But guys, we have so much to be grateful for. Write them down. Take note of the goodness of God. Look, it is not just for His own good that God kept saying, remember, remember, remember. 
He wants us to remember His faithfulness, to strengthen our faith, which in turn will fan that flame. Prayer is a way that we can fan the flame. Look, if you don't know what to pray, and I understand, sometimes words are really hard. Like, they are very difficult, particularly when you're on a stage in front of a lot of people and your mind goes blank. That happens from time to time. Prayer can be a hard thing, but it is a beautiful gift that God has given us to fan that flame. And if you don't know what to pray, the Psalms are a great place to start. When I was reading this morning, I shared this in Sunday school, but I was reading this morning, and I, I was really struck by like the honesty of David as he was writing a psalm. Okay, And I, I told them that if like David made music today, a lot of his stuff might be a little emo, right? He might be the guy that had like some black finger paint on, a fingernail paint, whatever it's called, um, because some of the stuff he gets is a little bit uh, honest. Listen to this. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Like, have you felt that way? Sometimes we feel that way and we let that rob us of our flame, right? We let that discouragement have its power, have its day in us, and we leave and we just let it win. We let the storm of life tell us who God is. But if we pray the Psalms, we're going to get to the end of the chapter, end of this song David is writing when he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. See, if we pray the Psalms, what it's going to do is let us be honest about where we are feeling, what we are feeling, but then bring us back to the place of, but... I have trusted in your steadfast love, but you have dealt bountifully with me. But God is faithful. Let his words in prayer fan your flame. And the last thing I'll say about fanning your flame, if you feel like that's where you're at today, find what pumps you up. We have a great God. He is truly incredible. And if you dig into His Word, you're going to find stuff that absolutely blows your mind. I want to, I'm going to give you just two things that I just think are like absolutely spectacular. These might not pump you up. These might be like the most boring things in the world to you. And that's very possible. But to me, it's incredible. The first thing, how interconnected God's Word is. Did you know that there are almost 64,000 cross-references in God's Word? Where one place in Scripture will reference another. Nearly 64,000. Now, that's a huge number. But it's even more mind-boggling when you understand that roughly 40 different men wrote, put pen to paper to the Scriptures. Over a little more than 1,500 years, on three continents, speaking different languages, different backgrounds, different economic statuses. And yet... In all of that, there is a divine author that made sure there was a story that went wrong. There was interconnectedness. Part of the introduction today was to show you how interconnected this passage is, right? That nearly 64,000 times in Scripture does one place reference another. 
That shows divine authorship by God. That is incredible. I think that's exciting. When I find more interconnected places, more cross-references, to me, I'm like, man, this is incredible. Look what God did. The other thing is that when I think about, like, it is the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, right? Like, whether you go Genesis 1, Colossians 1, John 1, like all of these different places talk about him as creator. Now, in the, the 40s, um, the United States dropped a bomb on Hiroshima. And some could say, um, some could argue, that that was probably the most dramatic use of force in human history. Never before and never again has any human force demonstrated such power towards an enemy. Now, one thing that is absolutely mind-boggling about that is that every single second that ticks by, the sun, the star, the center of our solar system, produces roughly 67 trillion times that power. So we take the greatest power man has ever done, but every second our star produces 67 trillion times that. One Mississippi, there it was. Two Mississippi, over and over again. And a trillion is one million millions, okay? That's a lot of power. But then scientists tell us that there's roughly three septillion stars out in our universe. That is roughly, that is three trillion trillions. The power that God has demonstrated is something we can't even begin to comprehend. I think that's exciting. I think that is incredible. When I look at the problems in my life based on the sheer power that God has demonstrated, it's like, man, my note, that note file getting corrupted seems pretty insignificant now, right? A camera not working right for a couple minutes seems pretty insignificant, right? The AC not working one morning in a Sunday school room seems pretty insignificant when we consider the power of God. But you have to figure out what pumps you up. I think if you really take repentance, prayer, gratitude, and finding these things in Scripture, I think if you take that seriously, your fan will be, your flame will be fanned. Not fan flamed, but flame fanned. I got one more verse here for you. It's Revelation 2, verse 7. And that says, He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And my last thought this morning, all of this is worth it. Because look what awaits. Paradise of God. Eternity with Him. So yeah, we can grow weary of the, of the good deeds. Believing the right things when it's so easier to believe what the world says. Not growing weary when there's so much pressure pushing down on us. Fighting to fan the flame of love of Christ. It's worth it. Because look what awaits. Which is in the paradise of God. So, this morning... Maybe one of these prayers is you. Jesus, I've been going through the motions. My deeds do not match what you have called me to, but I want more. Jesus, I've had this sin going on in my life, and it's just been putting out my fire. Help me get it back. Jesus, this world is so heavy. I need your strength to be my refuge. Jesus, I know you're worth it. I just need you to help me. Maybe one of those things is something your heart needs to pray today.
that Jesus would return your fire, that Jesus would grow your fire, that we could be consumed by our love for him so that all the other things, the deeds, the doctrines, the endurance, all those things would find their work themselves out because of our love of him is in the right place. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose. And that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.